Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I am your humble host, Coach Jason Coop. And on this episode of the podcast, we have a little bit of a tag on to episode 102, where we talked about the Aura Ring 3 and Is It Worth It with our coaches, Stephanie Howe, Karim Malcolm, and Ryan Anderson. And after that podcast came out, somebody reached out to me via Twitter, who is actually the author of that paper, Marco Altini, who just also happens to have his own heart rate variability of measurement company where he has an app, Heart Rate Training for Athletes or HRV for Athletes. And I wanted to bring him on the podcast, not only to discuss the validation study that he was the primary author on, but what the utility of measuring heart rate variability is, because this is one of those areas where I think that the amount of utility that is being presented for heart rate variability in the marketplace by all these wearables far outstrips, far outstrips the amount of actual utility that you can get from measuring heart rate variability. So I wanted to bring Marco on the podcast to discuss that, as well as a lot of these combination readiness and recovery scores that we're starting to see out in the marketplace. Although Marco is an advisor for Aura, I think you guys will find him honest and very pragmatic, and he kind of pulls no punches with what he thinks about some of the things that actually go on on the inside of the algorithms and the data that is actually being portrayed with a lot of these wearables. I had a lot of fun with this conversation. As always, I bring in people that are way smarter than me into the room, and so I decided to bring in Corinne Malcolm again to this conversation. So here it is, my conversation with Marco Altini and Corinne Malcolm, all about heart rate variability. I kind of want to start there and, and, and talk about the app and talk about why you started it and kind of more if you could if you could summarize those last several years of you designing all of the features in the app because i think that paints a really good picture for kind of the actionability side of things which is what we're ultimately going to get into yeah yeah for sure so you know we started this uh yeah eight ten years ago I think at the beginning, uh, you know, much of it is just timing. It was um, when you could finally just link phones to sensors, right? We couldn't even do that before, even with chest straps, like before uh, Bluetooth 4.0, which is, you know, the first one that allowed you to talk to sensors and, and power straps and things like that. We couldn't even get heart rate data easily to an app. So that was the beginning of, you know, trying to get physiological data into an app so that we can process it and show it to users in a way that it can help them tracking things like physiological stress. Then um, we evolved that towards trying to make it simpler, right? That was our mainly goal, uh, make it easier for people to use. People don't like to use chest apps first thing in the morning. So the camera technology uh, started to be something that was um, a bit more, let's say, explored those years. So you had this company out of MIT that had an app that could measure heart rate with a camera. So I thought, well, maybe we can do a bit more than that and look at the bit-to-bit differences and get into heart rate variability. 
Um, and that was indeed doable. And uh, we developed you know, the first algorithms to measure heart rate variability using the phone camera. So we had you know, something that we could compare to chest traps and ECGs, so just reference systems to do this. And it was as accurate uh, you know, when you don't move. And obviously, there are some um, things to consider right, with this technology that is a bit more prone to noise, as we know also from optical sensors that we use uh, these days at watches and things like that. So maintaining it accurate, uh, making it super affordable, right? just a few dollars to buy something that allows you to measure physiology every day, easy to use. So that first thing in the morning, you wake up, you take your measurement, uh, you don't need anything else, uh, any other sensor or device. And then that was the beginning. The first few years was a lot of this, trying to get this very accurate, very simple. Um, and then the interpretation of the data, I think that came a bit later because we also needed to learn that, I think, thanks to the technology, right? Uh, before, HRV studies were like, okay, let's get a bunch of people in the lab and we measure HRV once, then we do this intervention, and then we measure HRV again after four months. And we learned that that does not make any sense because there is so much day-to-day -day variability, right? Today and tomorrow is so different. So what's the point of, of doing that uh, in any study, as a matter of fact? So there were the first interventions looking at day-to-day -day data, and also there, you know, people were just trying things. For example, today your HRV is a bit lower than yesterday, so maybe there is more stress. But then over the years we learned that it's not really like that. We need to identify, for example, what is a normal range for you. That means, you know, just what's the day-to-day -day variability in which. Uh, nothing relevant has happened. That's just a normal change. Today is a bit lower than yesterday, but it's not a change that is significant, right? It's uh, you know similar to, maybe people can relate sometimes to blood pressure uh, because there we are used to have a range in which you know we know that very high is bad and very low is bad, and we wanna be in this normal range. Now we see HRV similarly, but the range is very specific to you. It's not just a population range in which you, know, you need to fit. So, that's how things have evolved, I think, a lot during the past few years, um, and also how we try to stress the interpretation should be done. That's why you need to measure many days, ideally for a month or two, so you know what's your normal, that's your range. And then when you deviate from that, then we know that something, um, a stronger stressor, let's say, is present. So that's when you might want to make some adjustments or move to the actual ability piece. Um, so yeah, a bit these elements, I would say over the years. I'm really glad that you mentioned kind of the origin story of how heart rate variability initially was very clumsy to get captured, right? You had to put on an external advice and getting that information from an external device into something that would then analyze it and then use that data between a coach and an athlete I mean, I've been coaching long enough where I've seen that pathway in many, in many different training devices from heart rate monitors to power meters to GPS technology. I mean, they've all kind of run that similar run of show where at first the data, the data capture to action ability piece was really clumsy. And as that pathway starts to get paved a whole lot better, that's when athletes start or, or don't. Uh, the mass adoption piece of it. And I think heart rate variability is one of those where you, where we're definitely seeing that pathway get smoothed out a lot quicker. And now we're kind of in the, we're in the, 
the, the mass adoption acceleration phase where so many people have access to this. The technology is simple. It's relatively affordable. It's easy to get into the hands of everybody and it's easy to produce relatively, I say this, I know you're like in the background going, it's really not that easy. To, it's really easy <laughs> to produce the data, to, to, to produce the visualization side of things, right, as well, and make things slick for people to look at and, and stuff like that. My first exposure to what you do, as, as, I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is just the simplicity of being able to put my finger on this camera and measure heart rate and heart rate variability. And I, I remember that as a transition point to where I could say, okay, now it's, now it's at the point where the invasiveness of, of capturing this physiological measurement is not, is, is, is not so intrusive and so complicated that people can actually start using it in an actual way. Because as you know, compliance is the key with any of this stuff. And if it's not easy to to, to, to start to, if it's not easier to, for athletes to actually do these things, they're not going to actually do them. Corinne, what was your first exposure to using heart rate variability? We've talked so, about this before a little bit. Yeah. I, um, I wanted to utilize it doing some research during my graduate studies. And so we actually, my advisor would not buy into the idea that this was going to be accurate enough. Like he refused <laughs> to buy into that, right? He was like, this no, no, being no, the you phone can't. you're holding up. We're, we have got a failure of yeah. video right here. So you're holding up yeah. a phone, this being the piece of accuracy. Yeah. So like, he was like, no, no, no. Like if we're going to add HRV to this study, you have to, like, we have to be collecting better data than that. And so trying to get a bunch of runners doing the knee knacker race in Vancouver to wear to wake up every morning and put on a chest strap to link it to I think we used um, HRV Elite maybe because we could get the raw data exported to Kubios um, and so to convince them you know every day for several weeks to wake up and do this for five minutes and to lay in bed and to like not fall back asleep but to be very calm. Um, was so much more tedious than being like, okay, I need a minute reading with your finger over the light of your phone camera. And, um, you know, we'll like, we can export that easily. So it's, it was very clunky in that sense, despite the fact that that was when papers were coming out about the validity with the phone lights, um, for like specifically for HRV. And when you're talking about needing 40 to 60 days to like actually wait trends, with heart rate variability, that's a lot of days in a row to try to convince athletes to wake up and put a chest strap on. I've also seen it. I come from a Nordic skiing background. And so First Beat, which is a Sunto, I think, partnered or affiliate like HRV group, they used it a lot for tracking um, kind of non-functional overreach, um, overtraining in a number of athletes who were, like, were experiencing mono, who were sick with mono. And they use that in their recovery. And there was some stuff published in the Nordic skiing community specific to that. So I had, I had read all that stuff. And in my mind, I'm like, well, they're going to bed with a chest strap on. So maybe that is the right way to do it. So <laughs> we've come a long ways when it comes to wearables and the clunkiness of these devices. I had athletes when I, you just reminded me, Corinne, I had athletes when I first started coaching that would wear their heart rate monitors to bed, the chest straps. And not just the like the nice ones that we have that are like fabric now, like the old clunky plastic, like super thick ones. I'm like, this is dumb. Like you're compromising your sleep in a way that's not worth the 
data capture after the end. <laughs> anyway, let's let's not get sidetracked too much. Okay, so we're we're gonna fundamentally have a conversation about the utility of heart rate variability in training. Um, but I think to set the table uh, for for the listeners and a little bit for for ourselves right here, we we fundamentally need to go over what heart rate variability is from a physiological perspective. And so Marco, we're going to kind of lean on you as the expert who has the app. You've studied it way more than Corinne and I uh, have, and you also use it from, for yourself and for, and, and, and for athletes. Can you give the listeners like a freshman undergraduate level synopsis of what heart rate variability is? So then we can then use that to, to try to dig into the utility a little bit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So when we measure heart rate variability, we are looking at um, a measure of physiological stress, which is derived from how the body responds to the stressors we face, typically via the autonomic nervous system. So the part of your body that you do not control yourself, you know, everything that is happening in the background, uh, you know, like you don't have to remember that you need your heart to beat or that you need to breathe and those sort of things are always happening and they stay in this state of balance that is required for optimal functioning. When we face stressors, there are disruptions in these mechanisms and one of these disruptions is a change in heart rate variability and that's what we measure with uh, these technologies. So if we face a stressor, there will be a reduction in heart rate variability. Your heart rate becomes a bit more constant. So the difference between consecutive beats is a bit more similar. And that's a clear marker of physiological stress. And that is why we use heart rate variability. It is not possible to measure the autonomic nervous system, especially the parasympathetic branch directly, which is the one in charge of you know, recovery and relaxation, what we care about here. Uh, so we use heart rate variability as a proxy of that. So something that is impacted by that process and therefore can give us some insights on physiological stress level. Does that I make sense? It totally makes sense. And I, I, I'm trying to play the role of the listener here a little bit and asking yeah. some probing questions. Um, we, we use proxies a lot in training. And Corinne and I, we kind of beat our, you know, we kind of beat our heads against the wall every once in a while when we're using these proxies, because that's really all they are. And sometimes those proxies are very good. And sometimes those proxies are okay. And sometimes those proxies are actually pretty, pretty terrible. You're using a proxy for quote unquote stress that has a wide range of inputs from neuromuscular stress, muscular stress, cardiovascular stress, life stress. I stayed up with a barking dog all night. Corinne's dog, Petey, is bothering her during work, and that's kind of stressing her out. And we're using not only, but we're using in this conversation heart rate variability as a proxy to distill down all of those pieces of stress to say, okay, how, how stressed is the actual athlete? And what I think a lot of the listeners are thinking of right now is how good is that proxy, given the fact that you're taking all of these branches of input and kind of distilling them down into, into, into one channel? I know you've heard this piece of feedback before. So what, what do you say to that, to, to that process? We're taking all these pieces of stress and we're distilling it down into this one thing. Yeah, so I think the first thing 
that is important to understand, which sometimes is um, forgotten when we think about athletes and training, is that it is definitely not just about training, right? So training is one of the stressors. Um, if there are other stressors linked to lifestyle, and you know, the most obvious are you know alcohol intake, poor diet, things like that. Those will have an effect to a point that you might not get anything meaningful in the context of training from the data because it's changed so much because of your lifestyle choices, for example. So this is a global marker. And even in that sense, it still does not capture everything that you mentioned, for example. So if we think about, um, you know, from a data perspective, we have clear associations between things like training uh, of various intensities and HRV or the menstrual cycle, different phases and HRV or sickness and HRV, alcohol intake, um, traveling, those kind of things, you know, show clear associations, but there are things like uh, muscle damage, right? Which is key to athletes. Um, and that is not really captured well, right? So if you do a high intensity session with very short intervals, for example, something that maybe has a lower load from other points of view, but has a high load at the neuromuscular level, uh, is something that you might not be able to capture with these metrics. So that is why the way we tend to uh, look at the data or inform people about how to use the data is always to use it as an overall marker of stress related to anything that will affect the autonomic nervous system, such as the stresses we mentioned, but to look at it not as the one marker, but you know, in combination with other things, the most obvious being how does the athlete feels, right? So the subjective uh, you know, perception of performance or training or all of that. The other piece is obviously training, external load, whatever you did, that is, you know, the important part of the training plan. Um, and then look at these things together so that you can get a bit closer to the bigger picture, uh, but not obviously just using this one market of stress um, as the one market that will capture everything because there will always be something um, that is not clearly reflected in their muscle or soreness always becomes the most obvious one in my experience. Yeah. Corinne, I'm going to want you to jump in here for a second, but let, let me kind of set this up. Okay. I think, I think that this area that you just mentioned, Marco, is the one that confuses people the most because they're looking at a singular metric and we're going to get into the composite scores, I promise you, because I know, Marco, you want to talk about that. But we're but in a lot of times when we're looking at heart rate variability, we're looking at it as this true surrogate uh, of, of quote unquote stress. And as you mentioned, it correlates very well with stress in some areas and not so well with stress in other areas. And we all know stress is stress is stress, right? I mean, if I go and I do a really, especially for trail running, right? A really muscularly damaging workout, a lot of descending and things like that. It might not show up as very stressful on some ways that we measure it. Heart rate variability might be, might be one of those, but on other ways, how do I feel? I feel like shit because my legs are super sore. That's good. Like that imbalance I think is, is part of the reason that athletes get so confused when they're looking at it because they're, because they're seeing 
this thing that's supposed to alchemize all of the properties as being, or they think that it's more like weighted equally or true representation or whatever. But in reality, what they're sensing is, is different. And that discrepancy is hard for athletes to go through. Corinne, I want you to kind of jump in here because I know you've got some thoughts on this as well. Yeah. So first, I think it's, I've got a couple things. Okay. So first, I think it's really important that the audience understands that the heart rate variability metric that is now being used in apps and through wearables, the 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 like the specific metric, like that number, there was a ton of research that went into which which number of from heart rate variability should we be using to court to correlate to correspond with stress. They looked at high frequencies and low frequencies and all these different mathematical interpretations of HRV to get to what is now used in apps as this thing that we can say, okay, this is going to be our marker, our thing that corresponds best with stress, including like, when do you take that reading? So tons and tons and tons of research has been done to get down to this like, quote unquote, simple metric. And I think that's really important because there's a lot of nuance that we're skating over there. Um, from heart, from the heart rate variability standpoint, there's like grant money on the line for this stuff because people think it's the fountain of youth, all sorts of fun stuff. So a lot of research has been done to get to this like simple metric. And that's important. The next thing that I think like the biggest complaint, and you guys just both talked about this, was that delayed onset muscle soreness, that DOMS effect, doesn't correspond necessarily with feeling like you're ready. And so when you get this readiness score in an app, you're like, well, I feel like garbage. How can I possibly be ready to go again? That's like a that's a contextual thing where that stress isn't picked up well by this one metric. And maybe this is the thing that I like champion the most in any of these conversations is that context is so important. And I think that's the thing that we struggle with, with our athletes when they want to use, when they want to bring in a new tool to the toolbox, be it HRV or whatnot, um, is that what is the context and does this metric, does this app, whatever it might be, take in that context well? Is it like, is the machine learning, is the AI there to understand the, like the nuanced context of someone's life? How much information is going into that to give you that readiness value? And I think that's honestly, there's like through lines here to how coaching works in general, right? Like I provide much better coaching when I know more about my athlete. And I think things like readiness scores can eventually give back more to the athlete when it knows more about the athlete. So I think that there's like, this idea that, oh, we're going to take this metric, it's going to be super easy to use. And in reality, there's so much more nuance behind what any one metric means to a coach, to the athlete, and what should be used moving forward. So, I mean, in that vein, Corinne, sometimes I think it's harder. Sometimes I think it makes it better, but it's also harder. And, and this is the conundrum, right? We want it better and easier, meaning you get better information to drive action. And you also want that information easier to understand and apply. And with when we start getting into things like heart rate variability or any one of the myriad of things that any of the whoops or aura rings actually measure, you might get better information, but it is certainly more hard, more complicated and, and more, I was going to use the word precise, but it's just more complicated to, to distill down into action because you have to know kind of what everything's going on. I, I think 
the the a really interesting lens to look at this through marco and this is where you can jump back in is how you have intentionally decided to do the data visualization side of things because as corinne just mentioned we glossed over a lot of the nuance and i think we kind of have to to keep this like a freshman level course versus like a phd level course because nobody will be able to keep up at that point maybe that's like four years from now we can do that but i i think that one of the things that i've appreciated about your app is just that is what you are displaying to the athlete and also think more importantly what you're not displaying right um to to add to the confusion so why don't you set that up and then with that background of of why you intentionally chose to do things the way that you do yeah yeah for sure so um, i think that here there are a couple of points that are really important and uh, really easy to um, get confused about and you know the technology improved a lot, right? We said we started from all these difficult methods and then we went to the phone cameras and now we are wearables and we just sleep and we don't do anything, right? And they collect the data. So that is great, especially for athletes that otherwise would not measure and would not have high compliance. And, you know, if you get two data points every 10 days, then you'd better not use the data at all, right? So if we have these tools, then there are two additional aspects that I think are really important and we can try to discuss them like high level, but still um, mention them because there's a lot of confusion that comes from using tools that can potentially measure accurately and they still provide you with the raw data, let's say HRV, not a composite score or a readiness score or whatever. Um, But still the data is not useful because it's not sample at the right time. And, you know, the easiest example is, you know, an Apple Watch, right? There are, I don't know, 100 million Apple Watch uh, devices out there. So it's very commonly used. The data gets into your health app. You don't do anything and you have your HRV in there. At the same time, um, this data is not used typically to measure first thing in the morning. And in the night, it is sampled randomly. So you get these data points that are maybe once at 1 a.m. and then once at 3 a.m. And that's very problematic because during the night, there is, uh, you know, the circadian rhythm, your physiology changes a bit. So, you know, your heart rate reduces throughout the night, HRV increases a bit. So if you sample at different times, the second night, maybe you were not more stressed. It was just another hour. And then another thing is that sleep stages have a huge impact, right? Autonomic activity during a sleep stage is very different during deep sleep and REM sleep, for example. That is actually the whole point in when we try to estimate sleep stages from HRV, right? If there was no strong association there, we could never try to do that. But that means that if you get, again, a few data points and one night they are in REM sleep and the other night they are in deep sleep, then again, this data becomes meaningless. So my point there for, you know, the consumer, whoever is using a device is just to make sure that, you know, you use a device that is either allowing it to measure first thing in the morning or that gives you the full night of data. Because if you have the full night of data, you average out all of these issues, the circadian rhythms, the sleep stages. That's not a problem anymore because you have all the data. And, you know, some say that maybe you need to collect data in a specific sleep sleep stage, right? So maybe deep sleep is better because it's a more stable state. But unfortunately, the technology does not allow to do that. We cannot be certain that any given point of the night, you are in a certain sleep stage, right? Even with the best algorithms we can build, we can maybe say you were 
50 minutes this night in deep sleep or something around that time. But we can never say in this moment you were in deep sleep, right? That level of precision is not there. So we cannot say we measure your HIV at that time because you were in that stage because we are never sure about that. And there is I also, want you, you know, wait, wait, hold on, Marco. Yep. I want you, we might come back to this, but I want you to repeat that last piece just for the listeners, because you literally just wrote the paper on this, right? You just wrote yeah. a paper <laughs> that I'll link in the show notes having to do with Aura's new, the new Aura uh, three ring, which we had a podcast on that, which, you know, this is how we got synced up on Twitter for the, for the people <laughs> in the background. This is how these things happen. <laughs> um, but you literally wrote this, you literally wrote this paper and for you to come out and say, we cannot pinpoint this stage of sleep, even though we have all of these different inputs coming into it, I think, I think is quite powerful. So before we kind of go on any further, I want to like pull that apart really quick, because it's going to come back with the readiness score piece, pieces of things. What did you do during that study? And why is that? So why is this sleep stage scoring so problematic? Yeah, so let's start from the beginning of why sleep stage is very problematic. And that's just that we don't even have a reference, right? When we say the reference for sleep staging is uh, PSG, a device that measures <clears throat> your brain activity, uh, your eye movement, and uh, your muscle activity, that is uh, data that is collected. And then a person scores it, which means that they look at it and they say, okay, this 30 seconds, you are in deep sleep and these 30 seconds you are in LEM sleep, and they do that throughout the night. And then another person does that, and then they agree 80, 85% of the time. And that's what we call the truth, like the reference for us to develop an algorithm. So I think there is the first problem. It's not that we have you know, an actual reference. If you develop an activity recognition algorithm, we know that you know this time point you were walking and this time point you were running, and that's the reference. But if, when we do that for sleep, we don't really know that you were in deep sleep and your REM sleep. You know, that's a person's opinion uh, that, you know, typically is 80, 85% accurate. And that's the best you can do. So if we were to develop an algorithm that was 100% accurate, that would actually be 100% of that 85%, right? Because still the reference as a margin of error. So that's, you know, the first problem in all of this is that it's very difficult because even the reference is not perfect. Then from there, we use autonomic activities. So again, heart rate, heart rate variability, temperature, movement, any sort of thing that you can measure um, at the finger uh, with a ring or at the wrist with another device. And then we use that as a proxy of, you know, brain activity because that's where, you know, sleep stages are actually measured normally. And there is a relation between those because otherwise it would be impossible to get um, you know, the results that we obtained recently. But at the same time, there is, again, a margin of error. So in my opinion, the best we can do, even with the latest algorithms and the latest results, is to spot trends over time, maybe to see if uh, you know, there are larger changes in situations where your behavior changes dramatically. Again, maybe you are traveling frequently or things like that. Or, uh, you know, we have a kid, you know, things that change behavior. And then maybe we can capture those changes and see what could be the implications or how we can try to address those. Um, but still, uh, given all of these errors that, you know, accumulate eventually, we I think it is simply not possible to 
pinpoint a time point in the night and say, okay, at this precise minute, you were in this stage. It's just, we just don't have the capacity to do that. And apart from very obvious, maybe sleep stages, like maybe a RAM, uh, it's very difficult to do that, even if you have PSG data, because it's just challenging to, yeah, to do this. We're So we're going to come back to the, to the, how, how your app visualizes the heart rate uh, variability data, <laughs> yes. but just, just for the listeners, the, the title of the paper is the promise of sleep, a multi-sensor approach for accurate sleep stage detection using the aura ring. And this is just their latest, um, that it's just aura's latest validation paper, right? Which you always need to do whenever you iterate either the algorithms that go into um, the different devices or actually the hardware that's 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 actually put into the device. I'll leave the links to that on the show notes, but I want the listeners to kind of remember this fundamental issue that we have when we're scoring sleep, that the, the gold standard really isn't all that gold. That's the way I've put it to athletes before, because it's still subject to human interpretation, bias, and subjectivity that's only... 85% accurate in, in, uh, in, in, in your, or, or in that's recognized, I guess it's not in your research, yeah. but that's the, that's the recognized amount of error. So let's go back to your app, right. And kind of yeah. getting back to what you display and why you've intentionally chosen to display that. I totally derailed your initial thought process. So you could go back a little bit. Corinne's laughing because I do this to her all the time. Yeah, but this I think is really is really key because uh, it fits back into why we do things this way as well. Uh, you know, the way we report the data is always to report the physiology only, uh, and then to use the rest as context, not to combine it in some sort of score. And we do that for different reasons. So you know, we would show you your heart rate and your HRV, and then we would show you your normal range. So again, where you expect your data to be unless there is a strong stressor or something odd happening, right? If uh, you are within this range, then that's just normal day-to-day -day variability and everything is normal and you shouldn't bother. If you are outside of that, then uh, there is something you might want to be more cautious about or you then, again, you might want to try to look at the other data, again, the context, the training and the subjective measures to see what could be driving that uh, deviation. So we do that instead of combining things together um, for two reasons. One comes back to things like sleep. Uh, for example, as we said, sleep stages and sleep in general, sleep quality uh, is something that we try to estimate, right? It's not really something that is measured because we measure some parameters and then we use them to estimate sleep stages. For example, we measure heart rate and heart rate variability, and then we try to estimate sleep stages, while HRV is actually measured. So if we put them together, we basically confound something that is measured with something that is estimated. And I think eventually we end up with more noisy data instead of better data. And I get it that you know we would love to put everything together and get this perfect marker of what is going on. But I don't think that's realistic because we will never have the context. Like, the all the context that Corinne also was mentioning, right? The more context, the better these tools can be. But at the same time, it's so difficult to have that context, right? Um, they measure a bunch of things and you can enter manually other things, but still so many other things happen that, you know, are just not there. Um, so it becomes very difficult then to get to this um, unique score that is supposed to uh, include all of this. 
And another aspect there, I think that others do, um, I think also in aura readiness is like this, but also in Garmin's um, body battery, I think they call it, where you mix the physiology and behavior, right? So if you exercise a lot, then your score is lower, like you are penalized for doing more. Uh, but that is not really helping me as an athlete or as a coach to understand if exercising more had a negative impact on my physiology or not, because my score is lower. So maybe for the consumer, that's like a way to keep them engaged, right? You see that you did a lot and your score reflects what it expected to be. So that's great. But then is my physiology really impacted by that? Like if I do a back-to-back long run and, you know, is the second run uh, starting in a state that was physiologically not optimal or is it still optimal because maybe I'm used to do that uh, and then it's not a problem, right? So we put together things and then we have this illusion that that's more informative, but instead I think we are diluting the information and it's better maybe to look at the single pieces of information not combined together so that we understand what is going on physiologically and with everything else that is maybe behavior. At this least is that's what, a bit how I see it. Yeah. This, this is why I think that you have, like we have more information, but it's also more complicated, not the other way around. We have more information and it makes it easier. And yeah. what I always try to weigh is, is how much is like, how much does that complication actually matter which i think is going to be kind of how we wrap all this stuff up because that's the practical piece of it but to summarize it's really simple you're collecting heart rate heart rate variability you're comparing it to normal and you're showing long and medium term term trends and what i mean by long term trends is months and medium turns several days accurate synopsis yeah perfect that's that's it so your spec sheet, right, on you can fit it on a, on a business card, right? And that's not to yeah. say it's more or less valuable. I think it's more valuable. I think it's the right value. I think that's the, that, that's, that's the biggest thing because the, the thing that the consumers have to ultimately weed through is how much utility is in the data that's actually being collected, right? And you've taken an approach of maximum utility for the, the things that you are actually, or you're looking at maximum utility and choosing to collect just those things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Less is more, in my opinion, in this case. Yeah, and it takes up the speculation, I think, too, right? Like, I think when you add, when you give consumers a score, it's easy for them to rely solely on that instead of maybe their own personal knowledge of themselves with just the simple data that's being collected instead. I don't know. Oh, here we go. (laughs) We're going to get into it. Okay, so, all right, set it up, Marco. So, Ultimately, you're collecting heart rate, heart rate variability, you're comparing it to normal, and you're trending it. With an athlete sees this, and with when, when a coach is using this in conjunction with the athlete, what's the utility? I'm going to try to ask you to do something that I don't want you to do, because then we'll get into the bigger picture conversation. What's the utility in just that? What's the utility? Like, if I had no other training information, right? Let's just like play, you know, weirdness world where we don't know what else is going on. If we had no other information to kind of go off of, aside from what HRV for training is showing us, what fundamentally is that going to tell the athlete and or the coach? 
So in my opinion, what you get from this type of data is information about your response. So you would have no idea about you know, the stimulus and the load, even if you know the athlete, because it's really about the response. And I think that's why it's interesting. For example, you know, we talk about the acute stressors, the high intensity training will cause a disruption that will be reflected in HRV if you measure it right after training, for example, right? There is research from, um, you know, Steven Seiler that I think you interviewed as well in the past, who showed very well this, right? You measured before and after a workout, showed that um, more than the duration, the intensity of the stimulus would cause a larger autonomic disruption, right? But that's right after the workout. If you measure, you know, several hours later in the morning, and you know you are used to the stimulus because you know that's training that is appropriate to you. You don't want to see you don't want to see that um, acute suppression, right? Everything should be within your normal. You expect to have a positive response. So for a good athlete, normally um, you have confirmation that the process is going well when you look at the data because things should be pretty much always within their normal range. I've seen, you know, triathletes that, you know, are maybe top 15, 20 in Kona, and they would not have a single acute suppression until the day after Kona. You know what I mean? It's like, that's the day in which they go hard and they train a lot and they train high intensity also the whole year, but then they are always in that optimal zone because they take care of their training and they are used to that kind of training and that's what they do it's you know it's their job and if you don't have any uh unexpected event sickness or uh, things like that then you're always in this optimal zone for other people you know there's always other stressors so you see how you might not be in a time period in which certain stimulus in terms of training, like high intensity work, might not be assimilated well because you are already in a negative state. For example, if you see a long-term suppression of HRV, uh, that's, you know, the practical use would be, okay, now my body is not responding well to whatever stress there is in my life. So if I add additional high intensity stimulus, for example, then I might compromise things worse in the longer run. Um, and that that's a way in which, for example, all the HRV guided training studies studies in research operate right now. Right, they look at these deviations from your normal when you are below your normal age in terms of baseline. So we, it means you know seven days moving average. So not just an acute suppression, but a couple of bad days. Then it will say, okay, now it's not a good time to add more stress. But that's not to say that this should be frequent, right? This should be a very unfrequent situation. It should almost never happen unless, again, something is really wrong, either health-wise or stress-wise because of major concerns. It's not what you expect to see in most situations. Um, Another one maybe is simply um, to start a conversation. I hear this a lot from coaches also of elite athletes, you know, people that, know everything about the training of their athletes and then sometimes you have a trend that you don't expect things are not going the direction you think and then it's maybe it's just um, a tool that that point you use to talk to your athlete about something outside of training and then maybe you learn that you know there was something there indeed that might have caused the additional stress 
So oh yeah, I stayed up till two in the morning working every day. <laughs> I mean, Corinne's you, she's shaking her head. She's like, "Yeah, I have athletes that like five days later they told me they got four hours of sleep in you know, the last four days." It's like, why did you tell me that the next day? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, their kids their kids been sick all week. They yeah. they exactly. broke up with their significant other. I don't know. There's they're, yeah, t- you get, they're telling you, get, you at the end of the week, not at the yeah. beginning. Of the week. <laughs> yeah. You get that story like a month later, and you're like, oh, by the cool. way, by the way, this happened five days ago. Thanks, thanks, man. Oh, yeah, yeah no. Or like, I didn't want to tell you that I was going to be at altitude because I still wanted to do that workout. And now I'm calling you to tell you that the workout sucked. And I'm like, well, I wouldn't have had you do the workout if I knew that you were going to be in Breckenridge. So, yeah, there's, yeah, communication. It's like a spy, right? It's like a spy into these other things. You know that there's a disruption, but you can't explain it. But no, I mean, that's an insightful point, Marco. It's a, it's a conversation starter, right? In a lot of ways. And we encourage athletes to be as transparent as possible about what's going on. And that's an easy statement to make. And sometimes if you have levers that you can pull or tools that you can use to facilitate that transparent, that transparency, heart rate variability being one, I think that that can be a good piece of utility for it. But fundamentally, I know, I know, I know I kind of cut you off, but I kind of want to wrap this up to talk about the next piece is that the utility comes in, you're the it's a it's a as as we mentioned at the at the onset it's a reflection of the stress and you're using and you're using that kind of distillation of how stressed the athlete is to modify training and to start a conversation Fun, fundamentally those are kind of the utilities of it yeah yeah i think you know in, in, yeah for sure and i think we are still in a good spot as you know coaches or athletes like at least you have something to play with, which is training that can be adjusted because these tools are used, you know, for research in any sort of other issue, uh, you know, psychological research and any sort of chronic disease. And in many other cases, when you have suppressions and clear signs of stress, it's so much harder to actually make a change. And again, if you're going through a breakup or there is a lot of stress at work and things like that, maybe that's how it is. You cannot really do that much about it sometimes while with training is always a bit easier. Uh, you have the choice to make some adjustments. So I think that's partially why this is more adopted in, let's say, the sports industry more than anything else, despite yeah. the fact that it's a global market of stress. Yeah. It's just that, you know, there is the motivation to do it, to measure, because you have your objective. And then there is the actionability. is a bit more actionable than in other cases. I want to talk about the art of this at some point, because we started, we started mentioning, you know, seven day rolling averages. And I do think that there, there's an art form to everything in coaching, but this is one area in particular, because you're using it in conjunction with the entire kind of training picture. So I'm giving you guys a heads up to kind of collect your thoughts on, on that. But before I know, Corinne's like, oh my God. <laughs> but before but before we get into that, we we'd really be remiss because we've we've danced around the subject a lot. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the composite scores. And you guys know there are no sponsors on this podcast. I don't have to adhere to, you know, anything. I'm not trying to, you know, collect sponsorships or anything like that in any kind of way. And I think this is this is one of the areas where that's the strategy and that really kind of shines really kind of shines through because I can authentically say kind of whatever the guest wants to say and whatever I and my other guests want to say uh, about kind of about anything. 
but very specifically, we're, we're going to probably a little bit unfairly lump in Whoop's recovery score and Aura's readiness score kind of into the same category, although they're telling us, or they think that they're telling us slightly different, slightly different things as the names imply recovery versus readiness. But I want to broaden that lens back out to composite scores. We're taking a lot of different physiological information, heart rate variability, heart rate, the time spent sleeping, body temperature, and we're I'm intentionally using the word alchemizing in this state, in this stage, because it literally is alchemy. We're taking all of those things and put in giving one number that says on, on whatever scale it uses. Yes, you are recovered. No, you're not recovered. Yes, you are ready. No, you're not ready. And whatever, you know, green to red light bandwidth exists in between those two points. And I've always had a hard time wrapping my head around why I throw those in the garbage bin or trying to articulate why I throw those in the garbage bin. So Barco, why don't we give you the first shot at maybe explaining how those scores come to light first, because you've got be you and your role have a little bit of insight into how those actually get produced and what, if any, information they are actually telling us. Yeah, so I think, um, let's say that here, again, we have one major issue, which is there is no reference. So we don't know what's the ideal reference that you would use for recovery or readiness or anything that is supposed to tell you how you should be feeling today. Um, Because again, it could be subjective, but then also there we know that how we feel subjectively does not always match uh, our body's abilities, for example, on a given day. Uh, again, you're getting sick maybe, and your physiology is already impaired, but you don't realize it yet. You think you're okay, and then you're not okay. There are mismatches, right? So uh, the first issue I would say is there. Then the second issue is that all of this algorithms they try to fit let's say a generic model in which you put together all of these things and they give you an output and that is also again generic is not specific to you so maybe for you a certain set of variables are more relevant than the generic variables that are used for everyone like maybe for you as an ultra runner uh, muscle soreness should be an input and for someone that is not running or not exercising, maybe, you know, they don't need to use that as an input. So these um, attempts to capture context still miss much of it. And even if they were including more, still it would be generic and not person specific. So that's also another issue that we have there. That then, is really interesting because yeah. I, I, I don't think that gets a lot of... Um... I don't think that gets a lot of uh, scrutiny. Um, the individual variability does because we, oh, we're all unique people, and you know that that just gets kind of thrown around ad ad hoc, and it, it is it, it is extremely important. But what you mentioned on the sports specificity side of it, I think people need to take equal take of note equally. When either of these device manufacturers is producing a readiness or recovery score, they are they are not discriminating 
amongst are you a rock climber? Are you a runner? Are you a triathlete? Are you this or are you that? And some athletes switch between that, but you switch between all those different sports at different times. And you, and it makes logical sense. We might not ever tease this out in the research, but it makes logical sense that even if you wanted to have a perfect readiness score, you would do it differently for an endurance athlete versus a strength athlete versus a power athlete versus a skill athlete. That makes that makes like coaching one on one sense all the sense in the world, but yet that discrimination is 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 in its current form not there. And I don't even know how you would do that. Yeah, exactly. So that's you know one of the many problems I think of this course uh, together with again mixing physiology and behavior. Right. So what you did and what your physiology is. You put them together, and what do we get there? Uh, is that you know this core? Is it helping us understanding how we are doing, or maybe just creating more confusion on what could be the cause of the issue that we are seeing? Um, what else? I think when we look at consumer tools. Another issue that we cannot ignore is that when we move away from the raw data, things like heart rate, HRV, temperature even, or breathing rate, or things like that, and we go to this course, then we are also, they, are, they are also subject to change, right? There is a new version, and it's different. And maybe we relied on how this worked before, and now it works differently. It provides a different output. They tune the algorithm or something like that. And that could be problematic because then what are we relying on, right? Is it something that uh, from this day on we cannot use anymore the same way we were using it before, even if we some, somehow made it work for us? Because now it's different and we never know when that happens. So I think it becomes very problematic in a sports setting or as a coach or as an athlete or when we do research to do things with this course instead of going to the source which is typically the signals that are measured that's why you know all of these tools that you mentioned i think at least all of them provide this data so you can look at it which i think is more informative at least most of them um some of them don't which i find a bit annoying like i have a garmin for running and then i see all their made up scores but I cannot see HRV, for example. So that's, I think, it's a pity because it's a device that you could also use, you know, for research or to actually look at your physiology, but you are not able to do it and can only look at composite scores that are built on top of that and that, to me, are not informative for, you know, all the reasons that we discussed so far. Everybody who has ever had a Garmin, here's mine. It's my Phoenix. I love my watch. I think it's I think it's one yeah, of the same. better showering watches out there. But everybody who has had one of these and trained seriously has had the same experience. They stop the watch and they see some absurd amount of recovery time presented. <laughs> Either sure. you do a one hour recovery run or one hour recovery activity and it tells you to take four days off or you've just done the hardest five hour training activity of your life and it's like recover is normal. Like everybody has had that experience, but I bring that up kind of jokingly is is it, it breeds a lot it breeds a lack of confidence when it's that egregiously wrong and an untrained eye can look at it and go, no, I'm 
I'm annihilated. I'm not taking 24 hours off. I'm taking four days off. I'm absolutely annihilated right now. Our mind says I'm detraining all the time. It's like detrain. De- it's like activity or training says detraining. And I'm like, come on. That's not fair. So. Yeah, I think they're and also I've noticed too, like, because I I'm altering back and forth between cycling a lot and running a lot because I'm coming back from injury. And I found too with a lot of these metrics that like the the way it weights running, so like uh like using a whoop or an aura ring or my Garmin versus the way it weights cycling. Like I went for yeah. a long ride on Sunday and was destroyed, but it weighted that so much less than like a standard, you know, yeah. two hour run for me. And it's like, they're not, it's not a one-to-one, it's not a two-to-one, but like, it's, it's so frustrating as an athlete trying to weight some of that with, with the tools versus just like knowing what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. And, you know, sometimes it becomes dangerous almost because, um, you know, I've had people reaching out to me, like I use Garmin again, and then after a, a marathon or something or long runs or things like that, I look at the data. And it tells me that I'm really stressed and they are super concerned because the algorithm is actually very simple. So they actually give it a lot more credit than they should give it because it's simply showing that your heart rate is elevated, right? Your heart rate is elevated because you did a big effort and then it's going to be higher for several hours even with respect to your normal. And so this body battery and these other features will always show like this enormous amount of stress, which is completely normal after a marathon or any other big effort right so they take something that you know it's very simple and then build all of this on top which lacks context even though you ran the marathon with using that device still that context is not taken into account right it will just look at your elevated heart rate and then trigger unnecessary concern i would say due to the oversimplification that is context that you cannot have yeah, that's that's key. The over, oversimplification is the context that you can't have because individually, most of maybe not all we and that's that's debatable. Most most of the things that are being collected that are getting put into this composite score could have some utility, and yeah. that's where people start to get super confused and they want one number to kind of rule them all that puts together all of these different things. But in reality, yeah, I would use temperature like as a separate data channel. I would look at that and say, okay, if that's, I can treat temperature as that. As a coach, I can treat heart rate with this. As a coach, I can treat heart rate variability in its own little channel and kind of figure out what to do with it. And Marco, you used an analogy in one of your blog posts where it's like combining apples and pears, but I just came up with a better one for you. And I'm not very good at analogies, nor did I like them, nor did I like them very much. So this might get completely butchered. But the thing that I think about if we want to stick on the food analogy is it's really combining two foods that don't belong together, like chocolate and ground beef. Like, I really like chocolate for what it is, right? I love I love chocolate. I'll eat it for dessert. I really like a nice hamburger. I really like a burger, and I like the ground beef that goes in it. But if I combine those two things, it just doesn't make sense. And I try to make a meal with them. It doesn't make sense. Like, you have to appreciate body temperature because we, we keep using that for what it is. Just like we have to appreciate heart rate variability for exactly what it is and resist the urge to combine them into 
it into one thing. That's the point that I'm trying to get with this. So my week, let's go around the room. I'll give you guys my opinion last. Is this worth, are the composite scores worth using with that? Corinne, you get to go first, by the way. Are the composite scores even worth looking at? Yay. Thanks for throwing me under the bus. <laughs> I, I, I could do that. I've known you for longer, Corinne. It's only fair to Marco. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I'm going to, for in full disclosure, right? I've used the the HRV for training, the elite HRV, those those tools. You know, I, I grew up basically in a heart rate monitor strap as a Nordic skier. I have used both Whoop and currently testing out a Gen 3 Aura Ring. So that's a disclaimer there, right? So I'm seeing this data um, presented to me and getting to be like, well, what do I actually know about my training? And what do I actually know about how I'm responding and the other things that are going on in my life? And I still think that it's a, an accountability tool. Like I, to me, that at most is what I'm getting out of using these products is like a, oh yeah, I tell myself I'm going to bed at 9.30, but really I didn't go to bed until 10.15 type of thing over, oh, I'm, I'm taking this readiness score and I'm going to use it to, to decide what I'm doing for training today because but I feel like I'm smarter. I'm smarter than the composite score. Yeah. No, no, no. I get what you're saying. My pushback on that is how interrelated is the compliance to the metric that you're getting meaning if you're complying more if i'm sleeping more the, am i getting the, better do, better right, scores exactly exactly because okay, that's so the compliance that's the compliance feedback right because i've heard i've heard this argument before marco's probably heard this totally. argument before that these t- types of things do have a psychological compliance associated with them and whenever yeah. that is the case you have to make sure that that association is has a high r squared value right otherwise it's otherwise yeah. otherwise you're not motivated to continue the behavior Okay, so here's an example. I, on Tuesday morning when I woke up, my Aura Ring app said, you should be careful today. You, you, like your things are not trending well today, sort of thing. And I said, well, I know that I'm getting a rest day tomorrow. Like I want one more day of stress and then I will take a rest day. And so I overrode the readiness score. And was fine. Turns out I'm totally fine. So I think that there's like in like like previous conversations that we've had, right? Like I'm not one to say, oh, here's this one score. I'm putting all my faith and all my value into this one thing. And I'm going to make a decision day to day based on that. Like that doesn't that's not what the science says to me. That's not what my brain says to me. That's not what the mostly compliant athlete says to me. So like that, like that's an example from this week of like seeing this on my phone and then making a decision that might counter what it's telling me. Does so that make cr- sense? Is that so? Corinne will use it as a compliance mechanism as long as it's convenient for you. As long as it, <laughs> as long as it fits your whatever you've got going on for the day. <laughs> if I don't want to do the workout, then I can say Adam. Well, my ordering said that I shouldn't do the workout today. It's confirmation bias when it's fine. It's on Tuesday, I really wanted to run TAM with my dog, and so I did. And then I took a rest day yesterday or Wednesday. That's so good. So, That's so good. Yeah. So I, mean, I mean, it tells you exactly how I think, I guess. But okay. no, I don't know. I get I it. I get it. I followed my plan. I get it. All right, Marco, you get a shot at this. 
the composite so first, scores. I think that, um, like, just to add a little to that, I think that that also, again, speaks just to the lack of context of the device, right? You know that you have RS day tomorrow. So for you, it's easy to do the math, but the tool does not know that. That's also why, even without the composite scores, just looking at HRV, people that get started with these things, they, or with anything that is HRV guided, they start from HRV when you should never do that. You should start from a plan, right? You should start from a training plan, and then maybe you make some adjustments based on the data. But the data should not be the first thing because otherwise, what do you do? You always go hard until your HRV is suppressed because you are already in a terrible state, right? So it does not make any sense to operate that way. You start with a plan, maybe you make an adjustment also based on you know the plan, the athlete level and all of that. Then back to the scores, um, you know, I have my conflicts, you know, I make HRV for training, I advise Aura, so I also like to be honest. So honestly, I think that the data should be the important piece here more than the composite scores. Uh, you know, I use the tool as well. And for me, there is little use in um, readiness scores, recovery scores, and things then, but, you know, body battery and, and all of that, that combines things together. Um, I see it and maybe I see a low score and maybe it triggers my interest. I'm like, why is that, right? And then I go and I look at the data and the signals and the physiology and was my temperature elevated? And, you know, was my HRV suppressed or how is my heart rate with respect to my normal? But then maybe, you know, in another tool, I just look at the data directly without that extra step, which, um, yeah, is not maybe helping me particularly. But again, this is also me, uh, which probably I have a different experience. You know, I've been doing this, like looking at this data inside out for 10 years. And I understand why these, these scores are there, right? You try to simplify also things for... Uh, a tool that is supposed to be used by you know millions of people that look at the data and get some insights and not everybody has you know four degrees to look into the data and understand what is happening so totally normal uh, and fine and it can work for people like if you are that average person in terms of the um, how the physiology and the activities impact your body basically the person for whom the tool is made eventually, right? Not the pro athlete, not the um, NFL team is probably, you know, uh, what we think that happens to the body and to your readiness when uh, the average person does not sleep much based on studies, when the average person trains a bit too much, when your physiology is a bit impaired and all of that gives you a number. And I'm sure many people have um, found decent guidance in there is just for me personally that I don't find it because I come from a different angle and probably yours is much closer to mine. That is, yeah. So that context, Marco, I think is the most important part because I don't want everybody to like reach out to Aura and ask for a refund after this, after this podcast. <laughs> no, me but, either. I'll be fired. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you're in a worse position than I am. <laughs> but here's why. Here's why. And I'm going to emphasize a couple words very intentionally. I, Jason Coop, as a coach, find zero utility in the composite scores. And that is because 
I, as an experienced coach who I, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I know what I'm doing most of the time. I've got the experience. I do, I do my research. I do my homework. I can do a better and far more accurate job looking at the totality of the information that's in front of me, who the athlete is, what they're training for, how long they've been training, what they're presenting in their post-activity comments, what their training load has looked like over the last three months, what I want it to look like over the last month. I can put all of those to con- together with the individual variables that I want, heart rate, heart rate variability, temperature, and maybe the sleep borders as being the top four there. I can put all those together better, way better, with all due respect to the people who have come up with these scores, way better than the algorithms to drive training action. That's why I say that as an as a coach, as a professional of over 20 years, I would throw them in the trash. If I were Joe Schmo out there and I didn't know shit or I was a horrible coach and I didn't really kind of know what I was doing, I might find a little bit more utility in these recovery scores because, you know, maybe if that, you know, maybe if that directional arrow gets a little bit better from a recovery score, I'm not going to necessarily say that that's a bad thing. And if it leads to you getting better as a coach and analyzing all of those things, maybe that's an outcome of it. But I, I, I get, I get the desire for people to want to take all of this stuff and give them a directional arrow. I totally get that. I com- I completely get that. What I'm saying is, is me as a, as a professional coach, I'm more accurate taking all the individual things and all the things that can't, that the, that the devices can't capture and putting that into actionable information versus an algorithm kind of doing it for me. When the algorithm gets better than me, I'm going to be the first one to raise my hand and say, yep, take it over machines. Like I'm, I'm going to sail off into the sunset and let all the machines do my coaching for me. And so I'm going to be the first one to do that. <laughs> Trust me. But as of today, it's, it's, and it's not close. And I kind of, I, I, and I wanted, I'm trying to say that without coming off as an arrogant prick, but when I look at the counsel that you could potentially derive from specifically the composite scores, it's not close to what I would want to do. And he, and I think we're going to get into why in this next segment, right? We're going to talk, we're going to talk very specifically about kind of the art of using heart rate variability in combination with everything. So Corinne, I put you on the spot earlier. I'll put myself on the spot this time. We'll go the opposite way around. Marco can be the sandwich in the middle of everything. But there is all of this information that we as coaches and we who advise athletes to do things can take into consideration. And I kind of want to first get a little bit of a rank order and then we can get into where heart rate variability is, because I think that that context is key. So when I'm personally evaluating what I want to do with an athlete, I first look at good training architecture. I think that that matters the most. If you get good training architecture right, most of this stuff kind of takes care of itself, to be honest with you. Second, I look at the individual athlete. What are their strengths and weaknesses? What are they obviously specifically training for? What does their previous training look like? Do they respond well to high volume, high intensity, three days a week, five days a week, that kind of stuff, that individual variability. I then look at the workout performance 
So just day to day, week to week, are the intervals going up, down, sideways, and how does that compare to 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 what I uh, what I expect? In conjunction with the workout performance, so these are two things that are in parallel of each other. I look at the post activity comments. So those two things are like side by side. So let me recap the order really quick. Smart architecture, individualization, side by side, workout to workout evaluation, and post-activity comments. And then after all of those, and this is a rank order prioritization, after all of those, I'll take the physiological measurements that we're seeing from heart rate during training, heart rate at rest, heart rate variability, temperature, and sleep border. And I put all those into my own little basket. And I don't, I I can't tell you, there's not an algorithm because it's me looking at it. I put all of those and I kind of give them equal weight across the board. And if I see the trends predominantly pointing in one way or the other, and I'll explain what that means in a second, that's when I'll adjust the architecture at the top. So if I see a post-activity comment or two or three in a row, hey, I'm tired. Hey, I felt like crap. Hey, whatever. I'm going to bring the training down a little bit and let the athlete get his or her legs back underneath them. If I see a little bit of that combined with a little bit of the heart rate variability, which is what we're going to talk, talk about, point in the same direction, the athlete is really ready to take on work. Like I feel awesome today. Okay. And the heart rate variability is kind of showing me the same thing. Okay. Let's pour it on. Let's like, you don't have enough training load. Let's, let's add, let's add a little bit kind of with the, within reason. That's how I'm distilling it down. And I go through that order pretty much every day and every week with every, with, with every athlete. But my point with it is, is the order. And then this basket of the physiological stuff of which heart rate variability is one. And it might, that might be the dominant player. If I'm thinking about it out loud right now within that whole basket, that's how I'm kind of taking it. And that's, the way I'm describing it, and this is why people want a composite score, is it's super esoteric and it's subject to my of my skill, essentially, of being able to put those in the right context and to give them uh, a word that Karen used earlier, the the right weight. So, Marco, your point of it's heart rate variability guided, not dictated is very that that phrase i think is very much true in the way that i go through things where i'm using it as a singular point of that guidance in combination with other things that absolutely have a whole lot more weight to them so that's how i do it personally and that's how yeah. I, I would advise athletes to do it marco you get the next you get the yeah, next to me, that at it. makes perfect sense um and you know the the reason why also we might want to use this data is it starts, I think, with awareness, right? So to start um, maybe fine-tuning also our subjective feeling, the perception of how we are doing and all of that sometimes is a process depending on the level of the athlete as well, of course. Typically, the higher level, you know, the better that skill. Um, so it can be more important maybe to look at that with a recreational athlete that thinks they need to power through all the time and you know they wake up at five and work out because that's the only time they have and all of those things can become more problematic than for someone that does it as a job and does 
a bit more flexibility. And of course, that also comes with a lot of additional stressors, right? Typically, even just making enough money to eat, for example, because you know professional athletes outside of some sports still struggle a lot with the day-to-day that is being a professional athlete. So everybody has stressors. It's not that one way or the other is easier, but that's also why it can be relevant regardless of the level, but in a different way. So the process might change a bit. But I agree 100% that training is the first thing um, and feedback of the athlete on how that training went. And then the physiology might help explain some of the issues or uh, give you some feedback there so that you are a bit more confident on the decision you make. If everything physiologically looks perfect, maybe you power through another day and see if that was just a bad day. If everything looks bad physiologically on top of the negative feedback, then maybe you make the change a day earlier. So things like that is just the process of looking at these things. And um, indeed, as you say, it's a bit of work, right? It's not a readiness score. It's you looking at it. But I think that's, again, also the awareness piece. Like as an athlete or self-coach athlete that might want to look at these things, maybe it's more useful to try to do that process. Uh, And actually, I had coaches telling me, you know, we take the HRV measurement, but we really like the questionnaire because that's when the athlete self-reflects. And they're like, okay, how do I feel? Like, am I sore? Am I fatigued? These kind of things. Like the self-awareness piece sometimes needs... Uh, yeah, a little help so that we start working on that. And that's how these things, I think, can help a bit or can be integrated in the process. But yeah, in my view, your process is also what normally uh, yeah, I would um, recommend doing to coaches and athletes looking at these things. The questionnaire piece, it's interesting that you get that feedback because some of the feedback that I get, I'm very RPE based and I use a lot of the subjective feedback a lot. And I I hear this in the athletic community a lot, and it's mainly in like the high performance community. Um, It's just that the athletes, they want to train so hard, so they're going to lie to you, right? They're not going to be honest about how sore they are, which to me, I'm like, that's bad coaching. Because if you're looking at everything, you can see when the physiology dissociates from the physiology and the performance dissociate from the questionnaires or the subjective feedback. And then you can go back to the athlete and say, well, why are you telling me that you feel awesome, but you're performing like shit? Like why? Like tell them and and all of your physiological metrics are, you know, in the in the tank, like explain that discrepancy to me. And so usually that's an art of coaching thing to kind of like bring those things out. I've always looked at that feedback and just go and just been like, well, you're not presenting kind of a complete like picture of actually what's going on, I guess is, 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 what, is what I'm trying to say. Okay. Corinne, you get the last shot at this one. Yeah. I was gonna say the, that athlete needs to trust their coaches more and maybe have an open conversation <laughs> with them. Too. Um, but that's neither here nor there, I guess. Um, one, okay. So I'll start backwards and then go forwards and maybe I think with the physiology piece, listening to both of you talk about it, I was thinking, well, maybe in a way you're like, you're using the physiology to test the null hypothesis, right? You're saying like, if this training is working, what is like, and, and then saying like, does the HRV match that? Right? Like, is the athlete tired? What does the physiology say? Is the athlete, can the athlete take on more? what does the physiology say? You're kind of like, it's almost like it's confirming 
what you're doing or or proving it wrong um, as a way to kind of like, I don't know, go back and forth between like turning the dial a little bit. And I think that I agree, you know, almost wholeheartedly with your kind of hierarchy of how you approach coaching. And I'd say the only thing that I probably do differently is that I probably flip flop the the human component and the architecture component because mm, okay. I've got my shift work athletes. I've got my parents with joint mm. custody athletes. I've got my uh, I've got my parents or my my athletes that are parents in general, or they travel every other week for work, or they're home. You know, they they work from home one week and then they work from the office one week, and they have to commute to the office. So I feel like in my mind, I almost have to take those human, like the human aspect of it first, and then say, how do I fit optimal architecture with that with those variables? Yeah. As opposed to saying this is optimal architecture, let me push your life into it somehow. So I think that's probably the biggest difference there is that I have to start with: is there any are there any huge life things that scream at me, their job, their family structure, whatever that might be, and then can tweak the architecture to to meet those needs? Because if you're working with a nurse who works three or four twelves a week, like optimal architecture isn't going to look the same for that person as it does for someone working a nine to five. So I think that that to me is like, I start there and then I can make the architecture fit that individual athlete. You know, it's funny, Corinne, how I act like I practically do this. We're going off the rails of this conversation, by the way. How I, so with the shift workers, I coach a lot of shift workers. I put the, I, I design the schedule as if they're not a shift worker. And then I move the things around training peaks. Like yeah, literally, literally, that's what I do. Like literally I put it out there. I'm like, okay, they're not a shift worker yet. Okay, this is what I want to do. Okay, where do I how where are the train traps that I need to avoid? And I just move the puzzle pieces around and then I make the, you know, the puzzle pieces bigger or smaller or kind of whatever whatever kind of kind of whatever whatever I want to do at that point. But for the like the 20 minutes that I'm doing that, I'm going, please don't log into training peaks. Please don't log into training peaks because you're going to see something and be like, wait a minute, I have a 20 hour work day and you're asking me to do a seven hour run on top. <laughs> that doesn't like, that doesn't actually work. But literally mechanically, that's, that's what I do with my shift workers. Sometimes yeah, I'll do it in my head, it but most of the times I do thing. it on training peaks. Yeah. It gets, it gets to the same, it gets to the same end, but like, I have to think about it that way first. Like I have to put in like, here's when they're working. How do I make it work? Or here's when they have their child. Here's how I make it work. Because yeah. like, to me, it's like, I don't, I don't want them to see me putting it on the wrong days. That's when you, that's when you use the blinding feature coop and yeah. you have it yeah, all hidden. I know. I and know. then you I need to, I need it, to do better with show. that. I need to do better with that. All right. Well, let's bring it back to heart rate variability. So we've kind of got the, here's the interesting part, right? We've got this, we've got this physiological metric that we could take. It's easy to take. It might not fall high on the rank order as we're all presenting it but it certainly can be very powerful. And so part of the art and the interpretation is knowing when it's giving you a signal to adjust. We've already gone through the thing the, through this aspect that we've got to look at things as otherwise specified, right? But I think we can, to help the listeners understand Maybe we can put some parameters on that. Marker, and I'll, Marker, I'll let you let, take the lead on this because you've got the most experience. There is a, I'm going to ignore these things and I'm going to take into consideration when these happens. Like the, like the very, very clear cases. 
why don't we kind of start with what are the mo most clear indicators of when we should be using heart rate variability to change training and then kind of move into the murky, like the, like the murky waters, like almost think about it as if, if I saw that it might jump all the other rank order things that we just mentioned, just because the signal is so strong, right? It might not be, it might not be tops on the list because we're getting such a strong signal. We're going to boost it up for this particular piece of evaluation. Yeah. All right. So I think, uh, a couple of things. One is always to consider the change again with respect to your normal. And you know, technically that might be, you know, one standard deviation in the data. And I mentioned this just because it it's not a score that is just a bit lower. So that's something that you know you need to use a tool that allows you to understand this and when a suppression is really a big suppression. So that means that you have an acute change, which is not just normal day-to-day -day variability. There is actually something that was different there. Now, in this context, still the one-day acute change, that's for later. So for the second part of let's debate if there is something to do or not. While what is a stronger signal is when you have a couple of these. And that's typically if the tool you use also shows you um, a baseline or seven days moving average. So basically your recent trend, not just the daily score, not your long-term normal, but a recent trend. If you look at that and that is below your normal, that can only happen when several days showed very high suppression, so very poor physiological profile. That is, in my opinion, typically a red flag. It should be very uncommon uh, over a year, I mean, unless you have periods in which you have poor health or you're sick or something is really wrong, this should happen really rarely that your baseline is below your normal for several days or even weeks. It can happen. Uh, you know, simple examples like in spring, I suffered headaches and allergies and things like that. And obviously, I keep training, but you know, I don't feel well. Uh, I don't do high intensity. Typically, it's reflected in the data. Even if you have such a period of um, high stress reflected in the data, and or maybe you also don't feel great, this period can last maybe weeks, right? So in a period that is so long and you're not sick, you're just something is just odd, again, seasonal allergies or headaches or problems like that, that can happen to many of us, right? In that case, on the day-to-day -day basis, you still are going to have better days and worse days, right? So it's not that, you know, your training is frozen for two months, right? But I think in that case, you are just aware and you need to accept that it's not the way it was before. So that's how it helps you. It helps you working with that awareness and knowledge and acceptance of the state you are right now, which maybe is not where you want to be, but it is where you are. And the fact that you have better days and worse days, and you can still do you know, your sessions on the better days and things like that, but the signal in that case is strong. And I think that's what we see in practice, but we also see it um, in the HRV guided studies where now they trigger the intervention only in that case. They don't do anything if you have just a single suppression on a given day. Um, and the outcomes are quite clear, uh, meaning that you know typically performance is either not impacted or improved. Physiological 
uh, data during uh, lab tests is also either improved or not impacted, which, you know, obviously it's small adjustments. So yeah. it would be ridiculous to think that you do this and your performance becomes like a lot better, right? Uh, to me, if there is no decrementing performance because you skipped maybe some key sessions, that's really a win because you didn't went in, you know, a negative state or you didn't, you know, got injured or got sick because you went really hard when your body was really in a poor state. But still, the research that has been published shows um, typically uh, positive results. And again, we all know also that typically that's how research works, meaning that maybe there was another study that didn't show that and didn't go through peer review. So <laughs> we also need to think about, you know, how science works. But in general, I think that's a strong signal. Uh, chronic suppression, baseline below normal, uh, several days with very poor HIV data. I think that's something uh, you need at least to think about in terms of deciding what to do during that phase uh, with your trade. Um, I would say, yeah, that's a good starting point. One of the hardest things that people have, one of the things that people have the hardest time wrapping their head around is that you've got to sit back and wait for the data to come through or for more readings to come through day after day. Like it, when you see one, when you see something anomalous or something outside of your standard deviation, it's like, okay, we're going to take note of it. And then you see another one. Okay. Am I going to take note of it again? Or am I going to do something about it? And then you see another one and like, okay, am I going to take a note again? Or am I going to do something about it? And how long do you run that out before it becomes problematic? That's where the art kind of becomes in thing with things. And once again, we're, we're kind of treating heart rate variability like it's on this like data island that is driving everything. And it's really not. But I honestly have a, a hard time struggling with like how many, like when does, when does it need to change? Right. And I don't know the right answer to it. Right. We say a few, so it's not one and it's not 10, but is it three? Is it four? Is it five? And I, I mean, that, that courage shakes her head. She's like, she's like, yeah, I'm thinking of the same thing right now. I, I don't, I don't know what it is. For a baseline change, I would say that's going to require three to four three bad to four, days. Yeah. Otherwise yes. not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. But so in that sense, is it too much of a lagging indicator? Hmm. Like, so, because I usually get, I mean, from a practical perspective, I usually get another directional arrow that's higher up on the food chain for me before I'm going to get that fourth day. That's practically how it, 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 as from a coach, when I'm looking at things every single day, practically, that's almost how, that's almost how it works every single time. So I don't get the fourth one. Usually I get something else that's stronger and then I combine it with like the first two or maybe three and say, okay, we're going to tweak whatever's coming up tomorrow based off of all that. I never, I never get it to the point where it's going to solely dictate what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, makes sense. It's uh, I think that's where the research shows all its limitations. It's not real life. Like you have these protocols yeah. with these very clear, you know, things that we do, um, but that's not how you would use it. And a counter example to that is also the acute change. Like today I wake up and my HIV is highly suppressed and I don't feel well. So I'm sick. 
do I wait four days before I make a change because I need the baseline to go below normal? <laughs> I, that would be very stupid, right? So sometimes the acute score is very telling and you don't want to ignore that. But again, you have that context, right? You know that, you know, maybe you have a fever as well. So you're not just not going to wait that long. So um, yeah, that's indeed, indeed, as you call it, more the art of trying to integrate this information. I would say we all have brains. We all have brains and we can use them. And the, the, the machines don't have brains. And that is our difference right now. I don't know. That's what Agreed. everybody's pitching, though, machine learning. We're, we're going to leave yeah. it at that. I think that's a compelling place to, to, to stop it. We've got brains and we need to use them. Because I, 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 I do think, Marco, and I think, you, I think you would agree with me on this. So if I'm putting words in your mouth, please, please correct me. Is that with a lot of the information that we are gathering from the wearables, yes, it can make the training more accurate and therefore more efficacious. But the, the partner in doing that is the person that can create the in, right analysis from that information to drive what the human is actually doing. And whether that's an athlete or a coach or kind of a team of people, Ultimately, that's what brings the information to its maximum amount of utility in a do this, don't do, 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 do that perspective is there's got to be somebody that is there that understands the information, what it's trying to communicate and what actions need to be drawn from that in order to optimize performance. For sure. Yeah, I, I agree to that. Karen, do you have any final statements? Besides, no, I, I just want gonna, to do TAM. I think I'm going to leave it. Yeah, I just want to do TAM irrespective of what my heart rate variability is. Uh, <laughs> you know, creatures of habit, right? No, I think that I think that people, like the tools are designed with a specific audience in mind, right? And that might be you and it might not be you. And I think that's important to evaluate when you think about adding a new tool to your toolbox. And then the next step is that you have a brain or your coach has a brain or you guys have brains when you combine them together. And I think that that's an important tool to utilize, right? You can exhale, you can be critical. Um, and it's up to you really to decide, you know, how you're going to utilize that information. And there's tons of information out there to help you make those decisions. 100%. We're very well put, Corinne. Okay. We're going to say goodbye for now. That was really fun. Marco, thanks for putting up with us all the way, all the way from the Netherlands, Amsterdam, right? Yeah, correct. Thank no, you. Brilliant. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Where can people find you uh, on social media? You're one of you're one of um, my favorite. You're one of my favorite followers on Twitter. I probably I, you probably are in the top, <laughs> like fifty. No, seriously, like you're, the content that you put out is fantastic. You summarize the research yeah, really well. It. You do it accurately, and you do it uh, in a way that most people can, even idiots like me, can like read and understand and draw utility from. So, where can people find you? Thank you. Uh, yeah, I think Twitter is right now the me main medium I use for um, you know sharing um, yeah the work and then links to articles and things we've write. So that would be at Altini underscore Marco. Then we can just put it later in in the notes, and that's easier for people. Yep. All the stuff will be in the show notes, links to Marco's social media and links to the research that we talked about. Really appreciate you guys coming on. Thanks a lot. I think the listeners have gotten a lot out of this. All right, folks, there you have it. 
There you go. Much thanks to Marco and Coach Corinne for coming on the podcast today. I hope everybody got a little bit of a glimpse into what we actually think about some of these recovery and readiness scores, as well as what the real utility in heart rate variability is. You guys go give Marco a follow on Twitter. He's one of the ones out there that I think is worth it. He puts out a lot of high quality information and he's also very passionate about this subject. And I think that if you're interested in this area, everybody would be well served to go and give Marco a follow. On a somewhat unrelated note, I know that a lot of people have been reaching out to me and sitting on the edge of their chairs waiting for the second edition of my book, Training Essentials for Ultra Running, to come out. Truth be told, it has definitely been delayed and that is one of the faults of self-publishing and me kind of not knowing what all of the how much time I need to do certain things at the at the part of the process. It's close. That's all I could say. I've got all the files ready. They're all uploaded to Amazon and wherever else they need to be uploaded to. It is simply a waiting game. But trust me, you all will be the first to know that it is available. If you follow me on social media, I will let you know the instant that you can purchase it on Amazon because I know a lot of people have been waiting to especially receive it for the holiday season, whether it's for themselves or for one of their training partners and friends. So it's close. That's all I can say. I'm not going to give a date, but it's really, 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 really close. And I actually have a podcast already queued up that introduces the next edition of the book that I'll release whenever the book is released. So I appreciate you guys checking in on it and uh, just let it be known that I'm doing everything that I can to get this thing out in the wild as soon as possible. I appreciate the heck out of each and every one of the listeners out there, you guys. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.